MSW Media. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And today we have a special episode with the writer-director as well as executive producer of The Comey Rule, the hit Showtime miniseries chronicling the life of James Comey and his decisions in the Clinton email uh, investigation as well as his uh, confrontation with Trump early on in the Russia investigation. And we have a panel of some of your favorite on-topic guests prominent DOJ and FBI alumni here to talk through some of the legal issues that are presented by that miniseries. So if you're new to On Topic, uh, you should consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app because uh, you'll hear more in-depth conversations like this one in the weeks to come. And if you're an On Topic regular, uh, buckle in for a really interesting discussion with a whole slew of panelists. Welcome to a very special episode of On Topic. And with us today uh, are the writer and director of the uh, Comey Rule miniseries on Showtime, which many of you have watched, as have I, uh, Billy Ray. Uh, thank you for joining us, Billy. Thanks for having me. It's a privilege. We also have executive producer Shane Slerno, who's joining us via phone. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And then we have a very distinguished panel of prominent uh, FBI and DOJ alumni, all of whom you know. Uh, we have uh, Barb McQuaid, uh, who is not only a former United States attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, uh, one of the larger uh, US attorney's offices, which contains Detroit, uh, but also an MSNBC legal analyst who you see on TV all the time. Um, then we also have Mimi Roca, who is the presumptive uh, uh, Westchester County District Attorney as the Democratic nominee. Uh, but before that, of course, she was a uh, federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York and an MSNBC legal analyst. We also have Asha Rangapa, who is not only a professor uh, at Yale, uh, but was an FBI counterintelligence analyst and a CNN uh, a national security and legal analyst. And then we have uh, Frank Piglusi, who is assistant director for counterintelligence uh, in the FBI for a number of years, and now is all an MSNBC national security analyst. And what we're here to talk about today is some of the events that are depicted in the Comey rule that gave rise to a lot of real life situations that we've discussed. And, and if you haven't watched the miniseries, I encourage you to do so. But uh, for, for purposes of today's conversation, what you need to know is that it covers um, a lot of the events that are depicted in Comey's book and which focuses a lot on uh, the Clinton email investigation as well as the Russia investigation. And so I guess as a starting off point, before we get into any specifics, uh, Billy and Shane, I'm really curious how this uh, came about. In other words, what, what made you decide to do a miniseries on this topic? I was uh, sitting in, in my office in Los Angeles. Um, it was about 8.30 at night, and an email popped up on my computer. And the subject line was, would you be interested in representing James Comey? That's, that's what it said. And uh, I, I opened the email up, and it was from... Um, 
this agency in Washington, D.C. that's uh, extremely successful. And uh, they asked me if I would be interested in representing the uh, film and television rights of uh, his forthcoming book. Um, what was interesting was um, they couldn't send me the book. Um, so I basically said yes after uh, some preliminary phone calls with director Comey and, um, and with them. And then I had to have um, someone fly to New York and read the book and download me the book as they read it for an entire like 10 hour day in a conference room in New York at the publishers. And, um, and then when we agreed to do it, I said to director Comey, I said, there's only one person to write this. And he said, well, that, that sounds ominous. I said, no, let's, I think he's going to do this. And, uh, and that was Billy. So Billy was the only person that I ever talked to or sent the book to. And fortunately he said, yes, it's kind of a funny story. I called him up and I said, Billy, I got to talk to you. And he said, I can't right now. Call me later. And he hung up and, uh, I called him. He didn't call me back. So I called him back at the end of the day. And he says, a really bad day. Can you call me tomorrow? I said, Billy, wait a minute. I'm representing James Comey. I have the rights to his book. Do you want to write it? And he goes, and I just hear him yell to everybody in the background, everybody leave me alone for 20 minutes. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, he said, you really you have the book? And I said, yes, I have the book. He said, you want me to do it? I said, yes, I want you to do it. He said, I think I want to do it. I just need to read the book. And uh, um, so, so that happened we arranged for billy to read the book and um and then we began this sort of incredible two-year journey against all odds which the hollywood reporter recently did a big big piece on um and we somehow convinced uh, uh a network a major network to spend 40 million dollars uh to make a highly controversial film about a highly polarizing figure two months before a national presidential election <laughs> wow what I'm, one thing I'm curious about is obviously Comey's book is written from his own perspective. Um, everyone is the hero in their own story. And I think um, there aren't a lot of other people who regard James Comey at least completely 100% as a hero. I think he's a controversial, as you said, a controversial figure. A figure I, I think many people, including yourselves, have described in some way as Shakespearean in a sense. There's this tragedy about him in which he's trying to avoid the politicization of the uh, FBI and ends up creating a lot of the perception of politi uh, politicization there. I'm curious, uh, did you, as you were developing the source material, uh, or as you were developing the miniseries from the source material, were you trying to kind of push back against it and try to include other perspectives or were you essentially saying we're going to tell his story? People as we sit down with me, people in the FBI, people in the uh, in the DOJ, uh, lots of reporters who covered the story, people who uh, were from the opposite side of the aisle. Um, I wanted as many perspectives as possible. There was no way I was going to tell this story from just one person's perspective. But what always was sort of the true north, true north for me was Donald Trump uh, uh, has maddeningly mischaracterized a group of people like the people on this panel right now as the deep state. And that was making me insane as a citizen because I knew the people that he was calling the deep state were really just Americans who cared deeply about our country, cared deeply about our democracy, and cared deeply about the apolitical intentions of the institutions that make that democracy possible. And from the beginning, I wanted to tell that story. I, I, you know, the first thing I said to Shane after I read the book, you know, the night I got it, I called him the next morning. I said, this is a love story between a man and an institution. 
and everything he does is in defense of that institution. And that was always what the story was about. It was about how heartbreaking it is to be a public servant. And I needed a lot of perspectives uh, to tell that story accurately. And, and one thing I would one thing I would add to that was, you know, when you talk to people that have a, you know, sort of, you know, super anger or super hatred for Comey, it's amazing how little they know about the actual facts. Because when you engage them in a conversation and say, if he had not held that press conference, if he had not done, you know, done that, what would have happened a week later when the Republicans in power found out that there was an investigation of Hillary Clinton and an announcement was withheld, we would have been in an impeachment situation right after, or before she was even sworn in. And when you take people through that process of, of, of that's why, you know, Billy wrote so well, you know, you know, there, there's only two choices, you know, terrible. And, and what was the exact line, Billy? But it's like, you know, you know, get ready for worse. Yeah. You know, and and I think that that that's the thing that's so difficult to me is that the country has shifted into such a, a a white and black situation that there's no gray. There's no complexity. Um, there's no attempt to contextualize anything. And largely what the four hour you know, miniseries is, is a contextualization of what happened. It's an anatomy of what these people went through. You know, if you look at Donald Trump, anyone who is investigating him or looking into him is an enemy. And that's why, you know, probably the greatest marketing term ever created, fake news, was created. It was created because he knew that the New York Times and Washington Post had bad information about him before he ever took office in January of 2017. So he had to characterize them that way. He had to label them that way so that whenever they reported something, he could just say fake news. And that's largely what he did to Comey, this sort of, ma I mean, you know, I think Donald Trump is a, is a terrible person. He's a criminal, but he is without question an extraordinary marketer. And all of his campaigns, whether it's against the FBI or whether it's against James Comey or the New York Times or the Washington Post, uh, it's always a marketing tool. It's always his marketing efforts that, uh, that what is what you're really competing against. And he will, he will say things like, you know, um, they were investigating my campaign. He says it so much that when they've interviewed people on the street and they'd ask them, you know, you know, what, what do you think that, well, you know, they were investigating his campaign. What proof do you have that? Well, the president told me because, because there's such a huge portion of the population now that only get their information from two places, Donald Trump and Fox news. And if you're only in that bubble, you're, 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 you're just not getting the full story. And that's largely what happened to James Comey. You know, when I watched this, I felt um, both a professional and a personal connection to it. You know, in 2002, I was in the Southern District of New York as a prosecutor, and Jim Comey came in to take over as U.S. Attorney from Mary Jo White, who had been U.S. Attorney forever and was revered and beloved. And in comes Jim Comey. And I, to this day, can remember standing and, and watching her, like, verbally pass the baton to him. It was, you know, shortly after September 11th attacks were still very real in New York and in our office, which was close to um, the World Trade Center. And 
Comey, I don't remember what he said, but I remember the feeling it evoked in all of us, and there were hundreds of us standing there. I would have literally ran after him at that moment into battle. He was so inspiring and so just his love for the country and the Department of Justice and that he had been in Virginia U.S. Attorney's Office and now in the Southern District, you know, really came through. And it was exactly what we all needed at that moment because we were all quite nervous given 9-11 and given Mary Jo White leaving. And so when I saw Jim Comey do the announcement about Hillary Clinton, um, and the emails, you know, I was very torn because the person that I knew would not let politics come into his decision making. And so I think, Billy, the way you put it of this story being about a love affair between a man and, and his institution, to me, is the best summary I've heard of the Comey sort of, you know, uh, saga, right? Um, and, and I think actually that the film does a really, or the show does a really good job of portraying him as someone who meant well and his ethics and, and his, um, his, his uh, goals were good, maybe not implemented in the best way, sitting here not knowing what the alternative was, but, but that his intentions and his loyalties were, were noble. And, um, that, that's what I loved so much about the show is that I thought it did kind of capture that ambiguity uh, about him and his relationship to, to the FBI. The sense that you guys uh, portrayed of his inner Boy Scout getting the best of him um, is like you're watching it and you can see the train wreck coming because we lived through it. And you want to just like jump in in slow motion and say no, but you also at the same time, it, it's just a very weird feeling as a viewer because you feel you're 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 angry. You want him to stop, but you also understand, right? Like there's um, it evokes, you know, a connection and an empathy that, to Shane's point, like when you when you fully understand the nuances and the impossibility of the situation that he was in with the particular characters, right? I don't even know that this story could have unfolded the way that it did if it weren't about Hillary and all of the things that, that she brought with her in terms of associations and baggage. And then of course, this, you know, larger than life figure of Donald Trump. I, it's like a, a perfect storm, the political Titanic. Um, you know, if you were watching that movie and you kind of just know this is just like, there's a certain kind of perfection of the tragedy of the iceberg had to hit in this very specific way for it all to just go down. And that's, that's what I got from, from both parts of that. I think especially the first part, um, which set it all into motion. That's really interesting. I have to say, I'm less sympathetic to James Comey than the rest of the folks on here. Um, no, Frank is nodding. Frank is nodding big time. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad. It's, it's Maybe it's an Italian <laughs> thing. I don't know. Um, but but I will say that, you know, look, I feel strongly about the, uh, the events, particularly in the second episode. Um, and I will say, I mean, I didn't begin speaking publicly about political issues or about any legal issues until I think it was the day that Comey gave his testimony before uh, the Senate. This I think it was the Senate Judiciary Committee. I don't remember exactly which committee it was, but so I do feel strongly about these topics, but I'm less sympathetic. 
Uh, I think there's that old saying, I don't know if anyone's ever seen the movie Chinatown where they say do as little as possible. I think James Comey um, really needed some humility. And if he had done a lot less and done what the FBI or DOJ does in, in typical cases, which it, you can say that the investigation's open, but say nothing else about it. You can say that a case has been declined and say nothing else about it. He would have saved himself and everyone else a lot of heartbreak. And so I appreciate that he didn't have perfect choices available to him, that he was stuck between bad and worse choices. But I, I have to say, I thought there was an element to which he was choosing the, he felt the need to, he felt, I think he had an assumption that if he just told everyone, explained everyone how noble he was and how his, and how he had figured out the best thing to do. And he, he, could, he could sort of explain to everyone and cut through all of the partisan divide and, and, and help us understand, help everyone understand the truth. And the reality was, I think, that you know, he got himself in more trouble through that instinct and he would have been better off saying less. I don't know what your take was, Frank. Yeah, Renato, I think first, it's important to caveat what I'm about to say in, and put it in proper context. There's no question that James Comey is roundly accepted as a man of the highest integrity and intentions. He's a guy you'd want living next door to you. You'd say, hey, can you watch the kids for an hour while I run an errand? He's that guy. Um, but I think Mimi used the term, this story is about a love affair between a man or a romance be between a man and his institution. I, I would say if that's true, it's a heartbreaking uh, romance because he, he helped to break the public's perception of the FBI as apolitical and neutral. And I do not buy that there was only one way to do this. And, and he kind of referred to, you know, as they teach doctors, in medical school, first do no harm. He's done harm, and he's done lasting harm to the FBI, which has to continue to exist and function well beyond the Trump administration. And so that kind of damage to reputation and perception um, does not reflect long-term thinking, but rather kind of short-term, that tragic Shakespearean flaw that you mentioned, Renato, of I am the only righteous person in the room and everyone will understand if I can simply explain, simply doesn't work in the polarized society in which we live. I keep pointing out that when I was head of the FBI in Northern uh, Ohio, if I had held a press conference to announce that um, no reasonable prosecutor would charge that mayor or that city councilman that we were investigating, I would have been fired. Now I understand this isn't about the mayor or city councilman, it's about um, someone running for president. But the same rules need to apply to the guy in Cleveland as they do to the guy at headquarters. And they did not. And I, I'm, privy, I'm privy to some things that went into Comey's distrust of the attorney general. But that does not negate the fact that there has to be accountability. He forgot for a moment that he wasn't the DAG. He wasn't anymore the deputy attorney general, he wasn't anymore the US attorney in the Southern District. He actually had bosses. He was the FBI director now, he was sub cabinet. And, and it could have been done through the DAG. It could have been done through an, a public announcement that we've ended our investigation and turned over the results, even with a recommendation across the street to DOJ. But I can tell you that the minute that that press conference started, draped uh, with the flags draped behind him at the Hoover building, 
many of us were texting many when i say many former fbi agents current and former that this was a disaster happening in front of us and i i believe it was i have to say you know it uh, you know i have i have a I have a lot of respect for you and and for your career and uh you know and i i understand many of the things that you you have said but i feel like you know that wasn't reflective of my interviews with people in the fbi or billy's um all of whom, I mean, I have a friend since I was 12 years old, who's a very, very high ranking person in the FBI. And, you know, he told us, you know, that, that people in the FBI really revere Director Comey and still have very, very strong and, and very positive feelings for him. And that was reflected in, in Billy's interviews as well. And, um, you know, obviously when, when Sarah uh, Huckabee Sanders made that grotesque lie from the White House, uh, saying that that you know many FBI agents felt, and then when she was you know under oath with Mueller, completely and totally retracted it and admitted she lied. Um, that that's just not reflective of what of what we found among among agents. You know, one of the things that I want to say, Frank, uh, uh, just about that is part of the reason for making this, at least for me, and I, and Barb, I'd like to hear your point of view about this too. Um, part of the reason for making this was. Everybody who experienced the 2016 election believes that they know what happened. And the reason they believe that is because they were looking through a very particular lens, whether that was MSNBC or CNN or Sinclair Radio or Fox News or their local paper. They believe they understand the context of events. And the attempt here was to take people inside the rooms that they did not have access to and to let them see what was actually happening in the FBI and in the DOJ and in the White House as all of this was falling apart. And my feeling about that was I wanted the, the movie, I keep calling it a movie, but it's a series, it's an old habit. I, keep wanted, I kept wanting the series to say, okay, be James Comey for five minutes. Here are the facts on the ground. Here are the constraints. Here are the pressures. Here are the political realities. And by the way, I stated in that series, I think James Comey's political instincts are not good. I think he did not understand how poisonous the political atmosphere was in 2016, and that it would negate some of the parts of his character that he thought were actually going to triumph. I wanted people to experience what he experienced for five minutes and then make up their own minds about what they would do. And it was never intended to be an apology for Director Comey. It was always meant to be an exploration of the process by which his decisions were made. And whether you like those decisions or not, and I've told him many times, I wish I were on his staff in 2016, I would have done a couple different drafts of some of the statements that he had made. Um, and I certainly would have shortened them. Uh, you cannot argue with the purity of the process by which those decisions were arrived at. Um, those were a lot of really smart, caring public servants around him, all trying to share their thinking with him. And um, if he made questionable decisions, and of course, they were questionable decisions. Um, there was an integrity to the process. And I felt that was really important to convey. Yeah, I think, by the way, uh, a couple of thoughts. One is they're not mutually exclusive. You can have deep, deep admiration and respect for someone and still think they made some mistakes. And then secondly, I think you did an amazing job of capturing um, not only FBI headquarters, but Comey in particular and explaining the story um, in, an, in a very successful way. One question I'd have for both you and Shane is, have you encountered anyone who's watched the show and said, you know what, I, I've changed my mind on Comey. I, I think I understand now. Uh
hundreds. I mean, if you go on Twitter, it's in the thousands. If you just put in the hashtag, the Comey rule, it's stunning to see people say by the thousands, you know, I mean, the program was the highest rated program limited series in the history of Showtime and, uh, you know, 25 year network or something. And, uh, and people by the thousands said, I didn't understand this. I only understood this. I mean, I guess, I guess what I'm really reacting to is the perception that he went and did the press conference solely for vanity or solely for that is not informed by the facts. He had never done anything like that in his entire history. And he had never done anything that was, this was a wholly unique, wholly nightmarish situation that I think he, he made a choice in that, yes, had negative results, but because it had negative results, doesn't make it wrong, doesn't make him wrong. And, and, and given what was going on with the attorney general and, and some of the things there, it was just a very complicated landscape for someone to, to operate in. Um, I mean, it wasn't as if he was really Rudolph Giuliani who had, you know, been pursuing a microphone, you know, as if it was Rita Hayworth his entire life. I mean, he, you know, he, 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 he really was a guy who, I mean, I've talked to him for so many, I don't know how many dozens and dozens of hours over the years, but just the agonizing that he went in to that situation with was, uh, was very real. And, um, you know, um, it was just such a poisonous landscape. And, um, you know, everyone says that it turned this, but the truth of the matter is there, there are a number of things that factored into that election. I mean, there, there wasn't campaigning in key states. There was, you know, Russian interference. There was Facebook ads in the hundreds of millions that were, you know, completely false and defamatory. There were false reports about her medical. I mean, if you were to really look honestly at the 2016 election, it's like a plane crash. It's not one thing that happens. It's a series of things that happened to cause the plane to crash. One of which without any excuse was James Comey, but he was one of call it a dozen or half a dozen sort of major events that led to that. Unfortunately, because he's an individual, he took the brunt of an entire election which I just don't think is supported by, by the data. Okay, but we're, but we're here to talk about that one element, that one element that was Comey. And so much of what our series is about is institutional friction between the FBI and the DOJ, between the DOJ and the White House. I mean, Barb, I'd love for you to check in on this. Um, how much is the institutional friction real? And, and, and how negative uh, an effect does it have on the way that justice gets done in America? I, I thought that that part of it was portrayed very well. And in fact, it, it, uh, there is this um, maybe healthy, spirited disagreement that occurs all the time between the FBI and DOJ. And when I say DOJ, I mean the, the lawyers and FBI, I mean the agents, even though they're all part of the same organization. Um, and I think it's a healthy give and take. Frequently, uh, Frank would know this. In fact, Frank and I had a case like this in Cleveland. Um, <clears throat> agents are often more aggressive and ready to go. Let's go to trial already. And prosecutors tend to be more cautious and say, I want to make sure I have sufficient evidence uh, to, to obtain a conviction. Let's continue to investigate. That's a healthy back and forth and give and take. I think um, one of the lessons of the Comey rule that I think is so important is about leadership. And, um, you know, Jim Comey himself has written books on leadership. Is very interesting. You know, the Comey rule is about, uh, I guess his book was called A Higher Loyalty, um, was called 
was about leadership. He wanted the FBI to be a leadership laboratory. He cared deeply, I'm sure he still does. And count me among those who revere Jim Comey and think he made a mistake. Um, I think even the title of his book, A Higher Loyalty is a Mistake, because it suggests that there are times when I'm above the rules of the organization. That's what I hear when I hear a higher loyalty, that I get to decide for myself what the rules should be. And I think a rule of leadership that I has been confirmed for me in watching that whole episode play out is you develop policies so that when there are hard situations, you can rely on the policy to explain your conduct. And so here the policy is um, to speak through indictments, to neither confirm nor deny the existence of an investigation. And if you're going to make a recommendation, you, you do it by the book, which means you provide your recommendation to DOJ as you depicted there, Sally Yates was frustrated um, and she has spoken about this to the IG and others and said, I thought that when the time came, we were gonna hold hands and jump off the bridge together. And instead, uh, you know, Comey goes off and does this on his own. Um, that was a violation of the policy. That's not by the book. That's not the way it's done. You would expect them to um, have announced a declination. And if anybody's going to take the hit there, it would either be the attorney general or to the extent she had a conflict because of Bill Clinton's unwise visit to her on the tarmac and in her plane, it would have been Sally Yates. But instead, I think Comey genuinely believed that he was going to take a bullet for the organization. This is a, a really tough one and I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna heroically save the day because um, I have a higher loyalty to uh, the institution, to the organization, to truth, whatever it is. Um, and, and it failed miserably. And I think in those situations, those are the hard calls. That's when you rely on the policy and not try to uh, improvise. Well, one thing I will say just for clarity's sake is my understanding of the title is it's a reference to Donald Trump asking him for loyalty at the loyalty dinner. And his higher loyalty was to something beyond Donald Trump, um, which is night two of the Comey rule, not night one of the Comey rule. But when I say that I think he has bad political instincts, I, I'm amplifying exactly what you're saying. I, I do think that he believed that he could make, uh, that in that press conference, he could make the statement that he made and people would say, oh, well, if Jim Comey believes it, it must be true. And that's enough. We'll just take it on face value. And he did not understand that Donald Trump by that point had been injected like a virus into the body politic and had poisoned everything around him. And that um, the, the, and I, I mean this lovingly, the Boy Scout-like impulses uh, and integrity of Jim Comey were just no match for the virus that was eating up uh, American politics by that point. Well, I, one thing I do want to say is I know I think you or Shane mentioned, Billy, that this was sort of the first time that Comey had done any of these things. Like if you look at his history, he's never, you know, he never gave a press conference like this before. You know, that must have been you, Shane. I got to say that really dovetails into what Barb said, because I have to say, what I see here, look, I, I have nothing but good things to say about Mr. Comey's character. I've heard great things about him. I had the pleasure of working for one of his very closest friends uh, when I was in DOJ. But um, I have to say what I see here, and it's not just with the press conference, but I think a treatment of Clinton and the Clinton inv investigation different than other investigations, other individuals. And to me, the higher principle uh, that the Justice Department stands for is to treat all citizens equally and that we have a, a system of justice, we have rules, we have policies, and we apply them 
without regard for who that person is. And I appreciate that there are, you know, different, a lot of considerations here, but I think when Justice Department lawyers, no matter who they are, no matter how savvy they are, when they get into the business of trying to change the rules and change the policies in anticipation for how things are going to play, they always get into trouble. And that's why, although he's been criticized for different reasons, I, I have more respect for Robert Mueller's approach, even though many are criticizing him now, because his approach was to be, have a certain humility about it and to do less rather than more. Now, and it, it reflected a humility about um, and an adherence to um, rules and norms that others didn't. And some could say, well, he didn't adapt to the Trump era, but I, in my opinion, the job of a prosecutor or in the case of Comey, an investigator is to investigate the facts, to follow the policy and the law and to do more, no more than that. Well, look, one thing I wanna do to kind of get to a broader point, cause we've been talking a lot about Comey's, I think major decision is I wanna show us a clip that talks a little bit about the beginning of the Clinton email a matter. So let's take a look at that clip now. Boss. What's up? Got a referral from the Intel IG about Secretary Clinton's emails. We're gonna have to open a case. So I, I just, what I wanna throw out to our panel here is what you make of that quick decision, at least as it's portrayed in the in the miniseries, to open the Clinton email investigation in the first place. I, I was surprised to hear it because to me, now at the time I was in DOJ and I wasn't involved in the discussion or public debate about this, and certainly it, was not, it had nothing to do with that case, but to me, I didn't see an allegation at the beginning here that really suggested to me that there was any likelihood that there would be an actual prosecutor, prosecutable crime here. And it would seem to me that this would have to be a very heavily considered decision, not an obvious choice to open investigation. I'm curious what others uh, thought about that. I'll just say real, real quick, um, having come out of the counterintelligence division, these types of cases, mishandling of classified, for example, or a concern that a high-ranking official um, may have had their communications compromised because of mishandling, those all go to the counterintelligence division. So the, your, your initial gut feeling that, hey, I'm not sure this had anything criminal inherent in it, might be right on the money, but comma, Giuliano also comes out of that national security background, and he would have seen that there are issues here that need to be opened, if only from a counterintelligence leakage standpoint. That's interesting. And Asha talks a lot, I think, about the distinction between those two types of investigations. I, I think here, um, Asha, this may have been a situation where what, what is, I think, an appropriate national security investigation perhaps immediately got construed as a criminal investigation, and those two got blended in a way that was unhelpful violation that's basically done on the counterintelligence side, um, like uh, espionage, um, anything that's involving top secret information. So in some, but I think you're right that the idea that Frank is saying that counterintelligence concerns, the idea that some of this information may have leaked out, what do our adversaries know, you know, if it got, you know, hacked into, that is not well understood. I think um, you know, in general, the entire counterintelligence probe was not well understood the whole time that Mueller was doing it. Um, to kind of move into the Mueller investigation, and maybe I have a kind of a directorial and uh, writing question for Shane. Um, one thing that was 
new to me. And also, you know, I wasn't sure how much Hollywood license you took with this. Um, I loved it, by the way, was Rosenstein's character. I loved it. Just his complete, you know, like mollusk-like, you know, lack of backbone, um, you know, Weasley, whatever, um, you know, uh, but what I thought was really interesting, number one, I was curious, why was he, like, what was the point of having him do the narration and kind of take us through the story? And, um, you know, how much license were you taking with this interpretation of him as kind of both having once, you know, having been a mentee of Comey, having benefited, you know, and almost admiring him, but then you know, turning on him in this, you know, in this very Shakespearean way, um, you know, uh, at, at the end. And I just, and by the way, Scoot McNary, how much did he, you know, take a liberty with the character to, to play it that way? Because it was, that, that was like, he was the most striking character to me. Well, let me try to, let me try to answer that and then hand it off to Billy as well, because, because, you know, he, he did such a beautiful job handling it, but, you know, the, the impression that, the impression that you get from watching Rosenstein um, is based on not just Comey's book where he's not even mentioned, um, but, but really by all the incredible interviews that Billy did and all the research that he did. And given recent events, I really believe we let him off easy. I think that his, I think that history will not treat him really well. Um, and, and I think that he was, you know, even the, the how he, someday I think the story is going to be told of how he brought Mueller in and, and the restrictions that he put on Mueller, which I think is its own fascinating process story for somebody to tackle. Um, and the rest I'll hand off to Billy because he, he was, you know, so, you know, involved in the shaping of all of this. Well, Usher, um, there was such an informational load in this story. I knew I was going to have to have a narrator of one kind or another just to just get us through uh, blocks of information. And I thought, all right, who would be the most interesting person to narrate this story? Um, it came down to two people. It was either going to be Trump or Rosenstein, uh, two people that that hated Comey. Um, I just thought they, they would offer a better counterpoint because I wanted to establish for the audience right off the bat I know you're conflicted about James Comey. Everybody's conflicted about James Comey. So I'm going to let someone who hates Jim Comey tell you the story of Jim Comey. Um, I'm a very big fan of the movie Amadeus. Loved the narration device in that movie. And I thought that Rosenstein was the perfect Salieri to Comey's Mozart. That Rosenstein was the guy, when they were all young prosecutors, Rosenstein was the guy who knew he would never be the guy if everybody met for a drink where people would want to hear his stories. They'd want to hear Chris Christie's stories. They'd want to hear Jim Comey's stories. That's who was in that class of people. And yes, he did ask for Jim Comey's help. He did have Jim Comey come to uh, the Baltimore U.S. Attorney's Office to talk about leadership. He did call Jim Comey into the DAG's office to ask, how can I do my job better? And then stuck a shiv in him, literally within days, um, with the Bedminster memo, or his rewriting of the Bedminster memo, uh, memo I should say. Um, you know, the interesting uh, thing about Rosenstein is we say in this miniseries, not just that he was our narrator, not just that he looked up to Jim Comey and then turned on him, but that he offered to wear a wire and that he cited the 25th Amendment as a, as a possible outcome here. 
Rod Rosenstein, if he wanted to say something publicly to, uh, to deny either of those things, could do so. They would put a microphone in his face. He hasn't denied either. Um, that should tell you about the truthfulness of the storytelling. And I think uh, Rod Rosenstein, um, as Shane said, the more we learn about what Rod Rosenstein did, not just in terms of this instance, but in terms of putting kids in cages, uh, we clearly took it too easy on them. And I would just, and one other thing I would add, would add to that that I think is really important is that a number, I was shocked, a number of the people that are portrayed in the film not only felt that they were portrayed accurately, but aggressively sought out Billy or myself to let us know that they were happy with their portrayal, including some of the portrayals that were the toughest in the series. And, I, and no one has disputed a single line in the piece. And I think that that really speaks to Billy's extraordinary research and uh, fidelity to, uh, to, to this story. And, and I have to tell you, when I started this thing, you know, I said to Billy, I said, listen, this guy is coming off as howdy duty. You've got to do some, you know, find some stuff that presents both sides of it. The difficulty with James Comey was we spent a year talking to people about him. And to a person, the stories that came back were the same kind of stories that were reiterated at the top of this call. I mean, for instance, this friend of mine, uh, since I was 12 years old, the you know, high-ranking FBI person, and, and I called him up, and, I, and he said all these wonderful things. That was one part of the story. When I was at dinner with Jim Comey, I brought up my friend, and he proceeded to tell me, I mean, deeply personal things about my friend that he had remembered and was asking about. And so that version of him that's portrayed is not some Elliot Ness um, whitewash. It's, it's really informed by, by the facts. And some of the things that I found very telling about him was if he was trying to engender sympathy, he would have mentioned that he was battling cancer during all this, and he didn't. It doesn't appear in his book at all. If he was trying to engender sympathy, he would have you know, talked about things in his personal life that would have engendered uh, sympathy, like losing a child. He never did. And I found him to be different. That doesn't mean I agree with everything that he did. It doesn't mean that I don't think things could, but, but I think that the person that we presented and the person that Jeff Daniels embodied is an accurate representation of James Comey. Well, um, so I, I love the portrayal of some of them. I thought Holly Hunter as Sally Yates was positively inspired I thought Loretta Lynch came across uh, authentically. Um, the, the casting for Jim Baker did not resemble the Jim Baker I know. Um, and I don't, he's never shared with me the details of what his role was, but boy, did that seem spot on. You know, the voice of the, the commonsensical, reasonable, good judgment guy of, you know, this is gonna be a disaster, Jim, don't, don't do this, uh, really rang true for me. But um, I was really curious about, I noticed at one point, I think it's in Rosenstein's office, we see a name badge for Chuck Rosenberg on the desk. And I wondered the significance of that. It, what, what it reminded me of is perhaps this is the moment when Chuck has resigned in um, uh, uh, having rejected uh, President Trump's um, suggestion that police officers should not be too nice when they're arresting suspects. But I wondered about that treatment because Chuck is also someone that I, I very much revere. Um, I love Chuck, and and we shot a number of scenes with that character, and ultimately, um, I didn't need the scenes. I really, really liked them. 
Um, in movie making, you have to murder your darlings. Uh, we were trying to tell a very specific story. Uh, it turns out that those scenes, uh, which I was very happy with on the page and very, very happy with in the editing room, they didn't help the overall goal of where we were going. I just want to throw one more thing in there about Mark Giuliano, if I can. Um, it's just a story that I know you guys will appreciate. Uh, Mark Giuliano's wife, uh, Judy, uh, they lived in, in Atlanta, and she didn't want him to take the job as, uh, as Comey's uh, deputy director. Um, and so he took it uh, for 18 months and um, over her objection. And then when Comey asked uh, Giuliano to stay on for another six months, and Giuliano was sort of guilted into doing it, she was livid. And Comey knew that. So he sent her an FBI Christmas ornament because she collected Christmas ornaments and then flew down to Atlanta to see her personally. And when he flew to Atlanta and came to their home, he discovered she had taken the, the FBI Christmas ornament and baked it into a cheesecake, which she then served to him. That was how she communicated to Jim Comey that she didn't like him renting her husband for another six months. That kills me. That is so FBI. Uh, I, I absolutely love that story. Has some La Casa Nostra overtones to it. <laughs> no, well, one thing I was curious about, I'd like to take a look at a scene that I think is pretty memorable uh, from the miniseries where Rosenstein is in the room with Donald Trump, who is essentially telling him how to write the memo about firing Comey or justifying the firing of Comey. So let's take a look at that. Mr. President, I don't think you could send this memo out in its current state. Why not? It's all true. It reads like personal animus instead of a reasoned executive. He lied decision. to me. He told me he would tell people I wasn't under investigation. And I was very specific about that, very strong and powerful there. And then he goes to the Senate and he doesn't say it. A lot of people told me I should fire him, but I kept him around. He's not a good guy. He's a dirty guy, bad cop. And he lied to me. Well, nevertheless, the language in this memo is fairly incendiary and very easy to misconstrue. I think it would be bad for the presidency and bad for you legally to, to have this out there. What parts? Well, for one, you do not need to mention and should not the Russia investigation as grounds for firing Director Comey. His mishandling of the Hillary emails is enough. He and I had an understanding about what he was going to tell people, and he didn't do it. The Trump-Russia cloud, he told me he'd lift it and then didn't. People should know he broke that deal. Sir, you would be exposing yourself to unnecessary risk here. Then you write it. I can do that. Great. Would you put in the fact that he told me three times I wasn't under investigation is very important that people understand that. Again, that would be conflating your decision to fire him with the Russia investigation, which is what we're all seeking to avoid. He's got people thinking I like golden showers. Are you going to keep anything about it? Jim Comey takes his fucking initials too seriously. Stephen keeps me tied to my base, which a lot of people forget, and then they don't get reelected. I don't want your version to go too easy on Comey. He's a bad guy. He's a dishonest guy. I understand how you feel, sir. Fine. Start writing. But I want Russia in there. So I guess my question coming off of the scene for Billy and Shane in particular is, I know you did a lot of research for um, this, for this uh, 
miniseries, a lot of these quotes come directly from primary sources. What what was this particular scene based on? I mean, what extent do we know exactly what Trump inst instructed Rosenstein to do in uh, in a meeting? It's the scene where I had the least information going in and had to, um, I think in the most mathematical way possible, I had to say, okay, here's the information that I do know, here's the result based on who these characters are in, in public facing reporting. What's my best guess at how the, the four page screed of the Bedminster memo got processed into the letter that, uh, that Rosenstein wrote. Um, you know, ultimately our actions define us. We, we are what we do. And the actions of Rod Rosenstein uh, combined with the actions of Donald Trump led me to believe that what happened in that scene must have been, uh, must have been the ingredients that led to that result. And again, nobody has called me a liar publicly about it. And Rosenstein, Trump, or anyone else who was in that room could have very easily, you know, held up a huge red flag and said, no, 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 that's not what happened at all. But it seems pretty obvious that's exactly what happened. Um, and that's who those people are. Well, yeah, Rod Rosenstein is very hard to figure out. I know a number of us have had uh, interactions with him on Twitter. He likes to uh, criticize some of us as pundits or attack everyone else who has something to say, but then he turns off comments on his own tweets, uh, just kind of mouths platitudes, is unwilling to justify or explain his actions. And one scene I have to say really stuck out to me, another scene about Rosenstein is, uh, I, don't, I don't think we need to show it, but he's literally tearing up crying saying, I can't believe they used me like this. I mean, it, it, the, when I saw Rosenstein in your miniseries crying, I, I thought this cannot possibly be believable uh, in light of the earlier meeting with Trump just a scene ago where he's taking his instructions and carrying them forward. What is that based on? Because uh, I think I'm trying to figure out Rosenstein like the rest of us. Well, that one I had cold. That one I had word for word. And it is as we presented in the series, you know, Rosenstein cried to a lot of people. Uh, in the in, in initial, you know, 16 to 24 hours after the firing of Comey. Um, you know, I, I don't know how many of you on this call, how many of you know Rosenstein? Well, I can corroborate that, Billy. I actually happened to be having dinner with someone who was a pretty high former person in the Justice Department who got a phone call. This was like in the day or two after uh, Comey had been fired got up to take the call, left and came back and basically said, that was Rod. He's pretty much in tears asking what he needs to do. And I was like, well, what did you tell him? And he said, I told him he has to get a special counsel. That's what everyone is telling him. He's calling everybody. So it was just this little snippet. When I saw that scene, I was like, oh yeah, that, that must've been right before he called my friend. Um, you know, so, <laughs> um, I mean, there are, there are, there are scenes, there are scenes in the film where there are four people in the room and we had what we had from three of the four or two of the four, um, you know, almost verbatim direct quotes. And so, um, but one thing that I think your, your listeners will find interesting is that when we originally put Brendan Gleeson in the makeup and hair for as Trump, everyone on the crew thought it was so ridiculous and couldn't stop laughing that we actually had to pull it back because some people said, oh, he's not tanned enough. 
he literally couldn't portray Trump as he is because to do so would have engendered Saturday Night Live skit type laughs that we we didn't want. We actually had to pull him back. And in terms of Rod Rosenstein, I, I really believe you know that the next couple of months and certainly the next couple of years are going to reveal a lot of things that he was involved in that were highly inappropriate, possibly illegal, uh, particularly involving the, the separation of families and the caging of children. Um, and um, I just don't, I don't think that he's going to, um, you know, uh, be treated well by history. And I think he has the same situation as Trump. I mean, make no mistake, after being involved with this for three years, I walked away realizing that Rod Rosenstein's celebrity crush is Rod Rosenstein. Crying, I thought, was um, important to the uh, story because I think many people saw him as a hero and that somehow he hired a special counsel out of defiance um, or somehow to push back against Trump. And I think, you know, given that I, I think he is a very weak character that it was more about self-preservation. It was about saving himself. Um, and I think that that's completely scene, agree with you know, you. To, where he does that is really, how do I get myself out of this mess? Um, because I've been now, because I think that's what he was being told by his DOJ colleagues. You are now in the crosshairs of an obstruction of justice investigation. Um, and uh, I think, you know, this was his way of saving himself, not the country. Yeah, Barb, you raised your hand that you knew, uh, Rod. I'm curious what you think. Yeah, it's hard to say. I think these are complicated situations. So, um, you know, early on, I uh, was certainly very pleased with Rod that he had um, appointed the special counsel, that he had chosen Robert Mueller. Uh, it made me feel like there was a responsible grown-up there and that he was going to do the right things. Ultimately, when he stood silently by, when William Barr um, spun the Mueller report the way he did really caused me to lose a lot of confidence in Rod and to be very disappointed in him. Um, I would hope that Rod had uh, privately tried to persuade William Barr not to do what he did, uh, but then he stood by silently when Barr made his announcements that were extremely inaccurate about what was in the contents of, of the Mueller report. You know, as I heard him saying them, I didn't know because I hadn't read it yet, but um, once you read it, you just can't square it with what Barr had to say. There's also the reporting, and I don't know whether it's ever been confirmed, that Rod had said something like to President Trump, don't worry, I can land the plane. And it worried me that um, the special counsel was really all about show and that in the end he would make sure that there were no you know, criminal charges or any adverse consequence for President Trump. And so um, uh, Comey himself had said in his book, um, that he didn't trust Rod because Rod was a survivor. He don't last in multiple administrations, uh, in Republican and Democratic administrations without making some compromises about your principles. And yet here he is. I suppose um, one could characterize Comey as a survivor a bit uh, because he had been in Republican and then Democratic administrations, but in the end he did not survive. And so I think there's a difference between the two of them that uh, you know one did uh, ultimately follow his loyalty to a higher loyalty, and uh, the other um, was willing to take it out to the end. And I think that's a spot-on analysis, and I think that's reflected in the dialogue that he wrote at the end for Rosenstein, where he says, you know, Jim Comey got himself fired and I'm still here. So, you know, we, we agree with your analysis and certainly uh, the other analysis that was just mentioned, because 
you know, when you're dealing with these, uh, any corporations, and it, it is interesting when you see someone hang on as long as they do. And, and the reason that Rod Rosenstein hung around with the Trump administration was because uh, he was willing to do what they wanted the way they wanted. And what's extraordinary to me about what Trump, you know, there's two things that Trump does that, that, that are a big part of his success. One is that he is fighting a Vietnam war and he somehow gets everyone else to fight the revolutionary war, meaning everyone else stands there and fires and reloads and stands there and reloads and, and does a very normal, you know, kind of old fashioned approach to things. And he's doing this completely um, uh, disruptor, um, uh, you know, method that, that does, you know, incredible harm to people who are trying to stick to norms and policies. Um, and then the second thing is he has this remarkable ability to get people to set their careers on fire uh, like I've never seen before. I mean, just person after person follows this path of ruin um, where they're initially praised. They're the greatest person in the world. Oh, my God, I can't believe we got so-and-so. Then they're warned, then they're demonized, then they're completely fired and cast out and ridiculed. And just person for person keep signing up for the same, same treatment. You'll see it with Mark Meadows at a certain point. You know, it, you know, this is, you know I don't know, what's he on, his fifth chief of staff? I mean, it's, um, it's just a really interesting pattern. Shane, that actually is the Rod Rosenstein story. And I'd love to hear from our panelists about this. Um, Rod did what they all do. They all told themselves a lie, which is, I may have to eat some shit, but if I can stay in my job, I can keep this guy from taking the thing completely off the rails. So it's my, my service to my country is to compromise my principles so that I don't get fired. And every one of them has calculated that wrong, every single one of them. And I would argue that the only one who didn't was Jim Comey. He never compromised his principles within the Trump administration. He never did something that he knew to be wrong in order to hold on to his job. And of course, he didn't hold on to his job. But I, I wonder what our panelists think about that in terms of staying alive in that kind of swamp. One thing I think that complicates things a little bit is, you know, Barb had mentioned at the very end how Rosenstein was standing silent uh, when Barr was reading uh, you know, wrote that letter and then ultimately was making an announcement that was false and misleading about the Mueller report. You know, FOIA dot, uh, emails indicate actually that Rosenstein was heavily involved in the drafting of that misleading letter by Barr. And Rosenstein's never acknowledged that publicly, never said anything, but those emails make very clear that he was literally involved in line edits on that letter. So are, is he really concerned about for keeping his job at that point, at the very end, when he's almost about to leave and the Mueller investigation is at an end? I mean, I don't understand the motivation there. Maybe I'm missing the missing it a little bit. I mean, I get that he, I, I know that this analysis that he's a survivor is part of it, but how, what is he telling himself there at the very end? I don't understand. Maybe the panel. He's telling himself that when he goes to King and Spalding, his stock and trade will be that he has maintained a great relationship with the president of the United States. That's his value to the law firm. Of course, he's going to hold on to that. That's the most important thing he's got. And you have to you have to look at the facts. I mean, the way that some of these people, I mean, Hope Hicks went from being a personal assistant to making one point seven million dollars for a corporation in the one year she was away from the White House. I mean, there's huge money involved in this for people, 
huge money involved in whether it's their book, whether it's their Fox, you know, Fox deal. I mean, I guess I missed all the tweets of Barack Obama tweeting about, you know, people leaving his administration and selling books. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. There are some days on Trump's Twitter where he tweets, uh, where someone tweets about how great he is that shouldn't be doing that. And he follows with, and what a wonderful book they have coming out on Tuesday. I mean, there's, there's never been, there's never been such an extraordinary monetization of the presidency. And things are so screwed up right now that the New York Times is releasing all of this stuff and it's, it's largely going uncovered because what they've succeeded in doing more than any other president in history is controlling the news cycle. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary part of this story, you know, and, and, and all of this factors in. And I think that one of the things Comey catches a lot of, a lot of shit for is that he, he didn't do things in a very straight way because I think part of him understood how crazy these situations were and that, that you had to do things like document things. You had to put things in your safe. You had to make sure someone else had them. You should, you know, um, uh, I think that those were, you know, they, they, they talk a lot about how he disrupted norms and there's very little attention paid to how Donald Trump, you know, took a hand grenade to norms, you know, and, and I, and I think that, that that context is really important to understanding the events of 2016. I think, well, I was just going to say, Renato, in, in response to your question about what it is that motivates people to hang in there, um, even to the point of their own, the demise of their reputations, personally and professionally, just fascinates me. And it, and it's, and it's not over. The, the, the issue of the, the, doc, the, the doctor to the president, um, who, who clearly um, has said things that are inaccurate about HIPAA laws uh, um, constraining him from releasing information, um, is playing games with vital signs and test data. Um, and it's a head scratcher. And I think there's a, it's not easily answered, clearly, but we have the survivors, like, like Rod Rosen, who are, I loved uh, uh, terminology. I think Reed and Mollusk in the same sentence is fascinating. But there's more, there's more going on. There's different categories. There's a, there's, a sub, there's a subgroup of what I call true believers. I think it's a very, very small subgroup. I think William Barr, that group, because there's some ideological, even theological driver, and, and that's a small group. But then there's this, this group that I think is being given position and power by Trump who not otherwise be that position. They, they realize that, and, and whether it's the, that young doctor or whether it's Chad Wolf, who has no background in law enforcement or national security, or whether it's Ratcliffe at DNI and on and on, or Mark Meadows for that matter, you're, he's essentially skilled at finding untalented people and giving them positions they would never get otherwise. And I think they cling to that, knowing that they're imposters in their. I think that's astute. And I think he really has run a kind of a reverse employment agency for the past four years. And it's really interesting to see the level of people that he gets and what those people are willing to do. I mean, I think there's something like 26 major acting directors right now in various capacities. And that's so that he has complete control over them. And because he knows most of them wouldn't get approved. 
So I wonder, look, we've, we've talked about a variety of subjects related to this, to this uh, mini series. One thing I wonder, and I think kind of could be a good way of looking at this overall, I'd appreciate everyone's views is, we're all, I think everyone on this, uh, on this uh, call right now is concerned about the politicization of the DOJ and the FBI. And we're concerned about how the reputation of the DOJ and FBI has changed. And I think if any of us were gonna say, who's the number one cause of that, we would say Donald Trump. And I wonder what role did James Comey and his activity play in that? How much is he responsible, unwittingly perhaps, uh, for some of the politicization that, that, that has come to be of the uh, DOJ and FBI? Yeah, see, I, um, I, I'm gonna, I, I mean, I think we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about the, the you know, Sort of gray areas of Jim Comey and and the the strengths and the the positives and the negatives, but the politicalization, if I said that right, part I just lay squarely at the feet of Donald Trump because, um, you know I think if what Comey had done with the emails had been the end of it, there would have been a certain, as Frank I think very well described, you know pale over the FBI and, and the DOJ in terms of the breaking of norms. But what Trump did, has done, is doing, is so far beyond that. I mean, you know, the other sort of central scene in this is, is right where he, I mean, the higher loyalty, where he's demanding loyalty of Jim Comey. And as someone who did organized crime cases for many, many years, I still, when I when I watched it, when I read it, when I when I know what happened, I I can't actually fathom that that was reality, right? I mean, it's almost like, as you said, you, you probably did, you know, try to pull it back because it's it's so out there. It is so crossing so many lines and boundaries, and that's what Trump does with the DOJ and and just the rule of law in general, like every single day. I mean, he just takes a hammer to it. So. I, you know, I think we can we can all agree, which I think we all have actually, about Comey. You know, having wonderful things about him and things he did right and things he got wrong. Um, but at the end of the day, I think when we look at this period, it has to be, it should be, it is Donald Trump who bears responsibility for destroying this Department of Justice and its reputation on purpose. It's not like it's an accident. He literally did it on purpose because it's an agency that could have held him accountable, FBI and prosecutors and the press. You know, this is what he set out to do. And as we've all said, he was really damn good at it and he did it. And, you know, one can only hope that now we'll be in a position to rebuild some of that integrity and trust that he purposefully, purposefully destroyed. And just to amplify what you said, which I agree with, with every word of, you know, look at what's happened since James Comey has been gone. It has magnified by a factor of 10. I mean, a couple of days ago, you had the president of the United States saying on national television that the attorney general will only be regarded as a good attorney general if he, in fact, files charges against Barack Obama and Joe Biden. I mean, in the White House press briefing room, you had Donald Trump say three times that President Barack Obama committed treason and not one single White House correspondent followed up with where exactly, when exactly, what proof do you have of that? 
we have normalized this man's insanity. We've actually gotten, it's gotten so normal that people don't even do their jobs anymore and follow up. He's allowed to make these extraordinarily insane statements without any even basic journalistic follow-up most times. And and so to echo what Mimi said, I, I, I think that, that it, it may have started around Comey's time, but but in the years since, it, it, it is so much worse than anything that was part of uh, Comey's uh, short tenure with the Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, to to that point, Shane, I do think, to bring it back to your, your series, one thing that was so, I think, important about bringing this all together into the cinematic, you know, experience where you just see this timeline is that it really drives home for the viewer how effing outrageous this was that we, I think we've like forgotten, you know, and I think especially for night two, I mean, the first night, I think, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you can be angry with Comey. I mean, the second night, it's just crazy town. And I, I happened to watch the second night with my son, who is uh, almost 14. So he's kind of come of age in this, you know, political consciousness kind of way, not following stuff, but having me, you know, go on TV and stuff, sort of more than probably your average teenager, I guess. And he watched it and he turned to me and he said, did that really happen? Like, did all of that really happen? Are they making some of this up? And I said, no, I said, this really happened. Like he, he and he said, so Trump actually said those things to the FBI director. And I said, yes, that's like literally words that they're taking from you know public testimony. And he says, how can he do that? And it was just like this, you know, I, I think got, brought me back to how we felt in that moment before all of this was, as you said, Shane, normalized. I remember the outrage when he fired James Comey. Um, as this stuff was starting to come out in those in the months of 2017, um, and how unbelievable it was. And you're right. And now that it could barely carry, you know, two hours of a news cycle um, anymore. I got to say, Asha, I got I do want to just to agree with you uh, in particular. I thought it was amazing how vividly um, that Billy and your you and your team brought the Comey memos to life and what he documented about his encounters with Donald Trump. I have read those memos many times. Um, like Asha, I was absolutely outraged. Uh, that's why when why I started talking publicly about issues related to Trump and and so forth is when I saw what he did. And I and it immediately looked to me like obstruction of justice. I noticed Comey and Baker were immediately in your miniseries were jumping to say that's obstruction of justice. Um, but it's interesting to me that, you know, when you read the Mueller report, Mueller was much less definitive about this whole episode than he was about others. And I do think it's interesting how the firing of Comey, which seemed to me like straight up obstruction of justice ultimately kind of got lost in the muddle of all of this other stuff in the Mueller report and I think it's very interesting it really had, your your miniseries brought it more to the fore than it had been in the sort of a national discussion since Comey was fired and and testified you know many uh, years ago at this a couple of year a few years ago at this point well it was something that I felt uh, Mueller had missed um, and I don't want to insult 
Robert Mueller, his service to his country is, you know, legendary. And then he went and served in Vietnam, which is something I don't think I would have survived. So I'm never going to criticize that guy. But yes, I, I do believe that that was obstruction of justice. And it was really important that we shine a, a light on that. You know, this is the third movie I've made about the FBI in my career. I made a movie called Breach, which was about Robert Hansen. I wrote a movie called Richard Jewell, uh, in which the FBI is not the good guy. Um, and one of the things that I, I'm really interested to hear from our panel about is I think Americans fundamentally understand how institutions work in this country. We think of the FBI as an institution, but as I'm sure Frank could tell us, the FBI is not an institution. It's a group of people who are stewards of an institution. And those people can have good judgment or bad, ju or bad judgment or good intentions or bad intentions. Um, and if you don't believe me, take a look at the United States Post Office, uh, which is a very different animal with Louis DeJoy running it than it would be with a human being running it who actually cares about uh, people getting their mail. Or the Department of Justice is a very different animal with a normal person running it than it is with Bill Barr running it, who is a theocratic uh, ideologue hack who is just trying to take out the trash for our president. Again, it's not the buildings that make decisions. It's the people inside them that do. And I'm, I was really fascinated by how the personalities inside those buildings, whether it's Loretta Lynch or Sally Yates or Jim Comey, how those personalities drove the decision-making uh, that was so critical to the American uh, political environment in 2016. But you guys have been inside those buildings uh, in a very real way that I haven't. You could speak more to it than I could. I just, I'll just say about the, the Bureau in particular, because I have a lot of these conversations with folks. If there's, if there's, there's so many takeaways from this time in history and we'll come up there hopefully at some point and, and make the points. But one, one for me is politicians come go. Our values as a democracy are not wrapped up in politicians, nor are politicians, no matter which side of the aisle, going to be our saviors out of any particular dilemma we find ourselves in. But our values are wrapped up in our institutions. And, and you're right, institutions is kind of this vague term. It's about the career professionals who swear wolf. And, and the career professionals are, are the core of, of the folks who represent what we stand for as a nation. And whether it's the Centers for Disease Control that can be completely suborned by, by pressure and the wrong leader or HHS or DOJ um, or the DNI position, we're learning more and more as a nation that, you know what, it, it is about those career professionals. It's not the guy or gal at the top. And, and it's less important even perhaps um, who wins office, but rather, who actually gets into those positions and into the key decision-making. Yeah, but I would ask you, those people that Trump calls the deep state, I would, I would ask the four of you, how much resistance is there in the Department of Justice right now to stop Bill Barr from doing the things that he should not be doing? Well, we don't, we don't really know the answer to that. We have some, we may talk to former colleagues and maybe some people inside right now. There's, uh, you know, I, there's a sense that from where I sit that there's there's angst and gnashing of teeth. Um, but, you know, people are, I think the true story is going to be told later when we hear from ex-directors. Um, maybe the next story you work on is a story years from now, Chris Ray, and how he may be pushing back hard at great risk 
to his position. We, we just don't know, but I have a feeling those stories are going to get told. I was just going to say real quick, I think there's a big difference in that answer, and this may be a, a little too in the weeds, but between the sort of um, line prosecutors, the people who do the day-to-day -day casework versus, you know, the executive level um, appointees. I mean, and that is why Chris Ray is remarkable in the sense that he's a Trump appointee, but seems to be trying genuinely to push back. I am of the view, and I've, I've said this before, I, I, I think everyone here agrees with, agrees with this, but I could be wrong, that line prosecutors, unless they're personally asked to do something that goes against their conscience and what they think to be the right thing to do, the, the thing that is best for the Department of Justice in the country, they shouldn't be individually pushing back because that they're supposed to be apolitical. Again, if they're personally asked to do something that they don't feel comfortable signing or a case that they should be bringing, you know, absolutely, then, and, and we've seen that um, actually at the line level, which we've never seen before at, in, in these numbers. So that's remarkable, but that means there's a failure of their supervisor, of the, of the higher ups who are the ones who usually shield them from it. I'll just, I'll just add in here, and I think Barb and Frank might be able to speak to this. It also seems that the Department of Justice is unusual um, from the other agencies in its decentralization. Um, the fact that there are, you know, heads of 56 field offices, um, U.S. attorneys for different districts. And so, you know, we've even, it becomes, I, I think, that it adds another buffer in the same way that the states add a buffer, you know, from the president in terms of the kind of pushback. And we saw that in the Southern District of New York when Jeffrey Berman was like, no, I do not resign. You're firing me um, and kind of called the bluff. Um, and I suspect that, you know, that it, it, it is harder to control, I guess. And I think Bill Barr might be seeing some of that too. I don't know to what extent, for example, he was briefed on the arrest of these Michigan terrorists. I assume he was, but who knows at this point, you know? I mean, it, it could be crazy in there in terms of people not knowing. But, you know, Frank and Barb were kind of at that place in their respective offices to know of the tension or how much you can buffer your own people from from that kind of pressure that could be coming. Yeah, you know, in the field, as we say, in an office like Detroit, um, it's it's really um, not political, you know, at the very highest levels, perhaps there are priorities that shift, but there's no discussion of politics ever. And actually, I, I really appreciate Shane and Billy, your portrayal of this, I thought, uh, in the miniseries where you see people working carefully and they're not talking about um, let's promote Hillary Clinton or let's uh, uh, you know promote candidate Trump. They're working really hard to follow the facts and law. They're very concerned about it and they're working very hard to stay out of the political fray. In fact, in, in the federal government, at least in the Justice Department, to call someone political is really an insult. It suggests that they're sort of a career climber or something. Um, and that is so uh, contrary to the culture of the organization. And I thought you actually portrayed that very well when you see the internal discussions at the FBI, what they're discussing about the sensitivities of the case, when you see inside Sally Yates's office and she's talking to Loretta Lynch about how to do these things, um, there's a great concern to avoid the political fray 
Um, and so um, one of the real harms that Donald Trump has done is to suggest that politics has any role in the decisions that are made by these people. So I really love those scenes inside when people are really pouring over decisions. I also loved um, the, the uh, very accurate portrayal of the buildings. Did you get in the building or were those sets? <laughs> uh, no, you know, uh, when I wrote uh, directed Breach in 2006, um, we were the first movie ever allowed to shoot inside the FBI. Um, but we were not allowed that privilege this time. We weren't actually allowed on the sidewalk outside the FBI. So we stole a couple shots from uh, across the street of, of uh, the Kennedy Building and, and the FBI, and everything else was a set. But just to but just to reiterate, uh, just to to amplify something you were saying. I mean, one of the things that's sad to me about this entire process, and was sad to me making this series with Billy, was that there is massive long term damage to these institutions from what Trump has said about them every single day for three and a half years. You know, the people who are U.S. attorneys, the people who are FBI agents, the people who work in those fields, you know, they tend to be highly skilled, highly talented, not seeking, you know, fame or fortune, could do much better in the private sector, and are really there for a noble purpose. And that's what we tried to portray in those scenes. You know, Donald Trump's sort of character assassination on all of those type of people is long-term. It's not long-term in 70% of the country, but I really believe, even if he's defeated, as I hope he is on November 3rd, that that that, that is going to stay for a long time, that he has succeeded in creating distrust of massive institutions. So that when 17 institutions say, yes, there was Russian interference, and he says they're all wrong, and I believe Putin, and these institutions are corrupt, and, you know, that has stayed with those people and you see it reflected in the on the street interviews where people have stopped listening in a certain portion of the country and you have you know sean hannity and some of these people daily bashing these institutions especially the fbi that that's long-term damage that's not that's cultural that that he has penetrated the culture and 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 that to me is one of the scariest things those scenes that you talked about, those are my favorite scenes in the series, the process scenes. And I really think what we tried to do so hard and what Billy succeeded in doing is that, you know, portraying those people as the heroes they are, they're quiet heroes. And we live in a culture of loud heroes, but they're heroes. And we were desperate to try to get that right. Yeah, I have to say, you know, you're talking about how this changed the popular consciousness. You know, I am a, a practicing lawyer and I represent people who some some of them are under investigation by now by the DOJ and so forth. And one of the considerations in terms of when you're picking juries is now there's a lot of jurors who believe some of this stuff. Um, clients that I'll that'll come to me sometimes will uh, reflect what they've viewed on Fox News or you know, in uh, Trump's tweets and so forth. There definitely is um, a corrosive aspect to this. And I do think that there is, there is a, a hope by many that, well, this will change if Trump is defeated in November and we will turn things back. And I, I certainly think that would be a, step, a major step forward. 
Um, but I, I do think that the after effects of this are going to be felt for some time. And I, I wonder whether or not you can ever sort of put Humpty Dumpty back together again. In other words, I think there were, there was a certain faith in these institutions that existed that I think Trump was a catalyst, but I think there were other ingredients out there that in combined with that catalyst to generate a distrust of the institutions. And I really, I wonder whether or not um, that pre-Trump trust uh, will ever be restored. This is the most painful part of this era in history for me. And, and it's, um, and you can see it reflected in, in my almost visceral reaction to the fact that, you know, I, I think Comey struck Page handed this president excuses to do this. I'm not, I'm not in any way saying that Trump isn't to blame for this. He is, and it is lasting damage. But, but something that was grained in my head from day one at the academy was never embarrass the bureau. And so here we are, um, and, and you know, there's lots of blame to point fingers around it, but, it, but Trump has literally destroyed the reputation in many people's minds of the bureau and DOJ. It will take a long time, if ever, to get back. Um, and, and it goes toward even the, the you know, you, you mentioned, we all mentioned earlier, this kind of guerrilla warfare mentality, you know, he, Trump's fighting the Vietnam War, everybody else has a musket and is shooting in line. And it's the same thing that, you know, his outrage that, oh, look at all these Democrats that were on the special counsel team. No one ever, you know, as Barb's alluded to and, and Mimi, no one, no one ever even asked that question. No one cares. It's not what you talk about around the water cooler. And so he's inserted this idea of politics into an area that was never, ever political at all. So that is painful um, for those of us who spent time in those institutions. Nato, just to, as a historical like reference point, I mean, I think the last time we were ever in this place where there was severe distrust um, of these institutions um, and also the presidency was post-Watergate, right? Um, that was, uh, you know, where these institutions were attempted to be subverted, to be um, arms of the president. Um, and then also there was all kinds of exposure of, you know, unconstitutional things that the FBI and the CIA were doing. Um, you know, and I think we it's taken a long time for those institutions to build that up. I mean, decades, decades, right? And reforms. But I think also the difference, there's a big difference is that at that time, there was at least an agreement among the parties that, you know, going back to this idea of a higher loyalty, that there was something, you know, higher that we needed to agree on in terms of how these institutions operate. And what I'm afraid of is that that agreement, that compact is out the window. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious if we can recover in the same way that we did post Watergate, whether there'll be reforms or whether they'll just be stonewall. Well, I will just say, Asha, you know, I, I think that's a really in, in, important point and an interesting analogy. And one thing that comes to mind to, from, to me off of that is, is that Watergate ended in some ways, the way a lot of people, there's a certain satisfaction to it, right? In the sense that I, I understand that Richard Nixon wasn't prosecuted, it was pardoned, but nonetheless, Nick, Richard Nixon paid a significant price and there was a sense in which he didn't quote, get away with it uh, in the minds of the public. And there was a lot of trust to be built, a lot of reforms, but there was a bipartisan understanding that the Nixon administration had done something wrong. 
that there needed to be reform, that he was out of office, that the Republicans needed to distance themselves from Nixon and so on. And here, I do think there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of what's going on with Trump that disturbs the public. And what I mean by that is, even if Trump is defeated by Biden, there is the sense that he got away with things during his presidency that he shouldn't have been. I mean, I get asked constantly by people all the time, well, why isn't he in prison for this? Why isn't he going to jail for that? And this is something I think people are starting to understand. People don't understand. They've watched so much um, law and order where everything gets wrapped up in 47 minutes um, that they don't understand the complexity of this. And then many of these things are crimes, okay? I mean, that's part of the thing with the Hillary Clinton uh, saga, right? With understanding that a lot of that wasn't a crime. But a lot of these things aren't crimes that a lot of them, they, that it could be difficult if someone's the president to bring a case against them that- um, somebody... no, no, Can I push back on that? Okay. I, I mean, I think I, I feel strongly about it, but yeah, I'm very, very- I'm so sorry. I actually have to go. I didn't account for enough time. Uh, but, so I, I'd like to sort of get in the last word if I could. And I want to thank all of you for being a part of this. This re I really, really appreciate it. We couldn't be more flattered. And, and you, you, and each of you, Billy, let me just say one thing. And each of you are the quiet heroes that I talked about. And so we've been honored that you would, you would, you would, you would give us your time today. When I was um, doing the research for this, so that's uh, 2018, um, I met a CIA officer who said to me of Trump, that motherfucker is going to die in prison. And I believe that to be true. And I know that there are people in the Department of Justice and in the FBI who believe that Donald Trump will be indicted the minute he leaves office. And I believe that to be true as well. Forgetting the norm shattering stuff, there's no question in my mind that he's guilty of many, many violations of the law. And in terms of the trust that the FBI and the DOJ are gonna have to rebuild, yes, that's absolutely true. I believe that just like Germany after World War II, we are going to spend generations unpacking what we allowed to happen in the last four years, what we what we saw happening to our democracy as we all stood by to one degree or another. And filmmakers are going to be part of that conversation and journalists are going to be part of that conversation and formers are going to be part of that conversation. But that conversation is going to take place. And if we are willing to ask ourselves the hard questions, both right and left, then we will begin a process of healing. And I'm really, really proud to play some small part in that conversation because I think it's, the, it's absolutely necessary for us as a nation if we are to move forward. Um, I, I literally have to go, but I thank you all for being a part of this. Thank you, Billy. Wow. Well, look, I, I will say, I'm curious if anyone has a last word on that topic or anyone has a pushback one way or the other on it, I'd be interested before we go. Hearing none. All right, we will end it there. I think that's probably a smart, a smart thing to do, not to speculate on that point. Um, all right. Well, thank you all. I really appreciate it. It's been a fantastic, uh, fantastic experience. So thank you all. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of On Topic. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. And if you want to check out past episodes, go to our webpage, ontopicpodcast.com. Dot com, all one word. On the webpage, you'll find all of our past episodes as well as information about our guests. Until next time, let's stay on topic.